How are you doing? Shalom, y'all. <laughs> Let's put a Jewish flavor to this. Uh, certainly glad to be able to share with you tonight's program, in which we're going to be studying, analyzing a little more about the ongoing crisis. And this is a current event because as we speak right now, the United Nations has met and is meeting right now in the General Assembly and, of course, in condemnation of Israel. It's going to be the 79th resolution against Israel, and all the nations of the world speaking one after the other one condemning Israel. And I was just driving up here. I was listening to some of the speakers, and again, total condemnation. So current events, current events. Uh, like the pastor said, I don't want to be a, do a commercial, but my commercial is here. Uh, I wrote this book that uh, they asked me to write it because other histories of Israel are like 600 pages or 400 pages long. And uh, so I, they asked me to summarize the history of Israel. And the last few chapters include the ongoing situation and understanding from our current events, you know, since the creation of the state of Israel, what led to the state of Israel. And I have a few copies of the book back there. If you want to buy it, they are for sale. I also would like to keep in touch with you. I know some of you already have done it, but uh, we have in the back or distributed a brochure that is made of two parts. And as you can, if you don't, if you don't have it, just make sure that you get one, because I want to keep in touch with you, especially to let you know what's going on. Our ministry in Israel uh, is going through a you know time of turmoil, to say the least. You know, we talk about displacement, and I was. Our president, Mitch Glaser, president of Chosen People Ministries, came back yesterday or is coming back today from Israel. And uh, we keep getting updates from the front every day. And for instance, right now, there are 100,000 Israelis that have been displaced from the north because we're expecting or an attack from Lebanon. So all the, all the northern cities of Israel have been moved, and the people have been moved to the sites. And our, our staff is helping the relocation of people, housing people. And the, in the south, in Sidorot, where the most horrible attack took place, actually we were working there extensively with a few Holocaust survivors that are still there. And now we are helping them to deal with this crisis. And we're working with the soldiers, and uh, we're bringing them hot food. We're bringing them uh, warm clothing because when they began, they weren't prepared for the winter. And so we're there uh, doing what we call humanitarian and also bringing the gospel of Jesus because the gospel has to be brought in a practical ways. And, you know, God is working in the midst of all this crisis. And uh, I don't want to tell you a lot of stories. I have many stories to tell you. But um, uh, the, the relief that we have about 33 uh, full-time missionaries in Israel, all of them Israelis, some of them in the reserve, and the others, the other day, <laughs> kind of funny picture, in our headquarters, the director of our ministry in Israel, Michael Zinn, was there um, going to the office carrying a machine gun, right, And uh, because he's in the reserve like everybody else. So things are different, things are difficult, by God's grace, the message continues to be preached, and uh, we are supplying needs for family that have been misplaced, and we're helping in the rent of some hotels, so people that had to move out from the north or the south to a safer place, uh, we can provide with them. Also, we're doing things with, with the children. What do you do with the children? They can't go to school. So our staff is using our facilities in order to bring the kids from their homes, and they can 
hear Bible studies and be not entertained but taught and help them to pass the time. And we have a lot of work also with the elderly, people who have survived the Holocaust, people who have come from torn war Europe after World War II, and they, when they, they are by themselves. So one of the ministries that we do is just keep them company, just keep them company. And your prayers and your uh, efforts will help us to continue. If you want to continue to what they the were doing in Israel, uh, please go to our website, www.chosenpeople.com forward slash war. And all the funds that are go there are specifically used for relief work that we continue. But in the midst of that, in the midst of the relief work, people are being saved. Uh, it seems like in the time of crisis, like somebody said, there's no atheists in the, in the trenches, right? And um, I, just, I promise to be short, because so many stories to tell, I just can't. Uh, just to tell you how things happen, is that a few days ago, when the tanks were ready to enter Gaza, they did not go to Gaza yet, they were waiting on the border. And so some of, uh, some of the soldiers were Messianic Jews. And they began to, to, to pray, and they began to, you know, they are in the tanks. Of course, they're not all the time in the tank. They're next to it. So they began to pray, and they began to sing songs. And some of the others says, are uh, you praying? Yeah, can you pray for us as well? And the Messianic Jews, the believers, say, well, you know, we are going to pray in the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Messiah. So that's good. Pray for us as well. So uh, the next day they began singing and, you know, larger groups are hearing and uh, we don't take advantage of the situation, but we do take advantage of the situation. You understand that? God is opening opportunities. People are being baptized, believe it or not. In the midst of all this crisis, people are being baptized, coming to faith in Jesus. Perhaps a crisis like this, like many other crises, you know, opens, you know, make people think about their spiritual life. Make them they realize that safety is not only when you think you're safe. You know, that's, that's, that's when you think the most. So I'm going to uh, make sure that you get the opportunity. Please fill this out. And this has two parts, like I mentioned. One part you tear off, like this. And at the end, we're going to take an offering for chosen people tonight, okay? For the worldwide ministry, especially work in Israel, we're carrying out. But we want to keep your... Uh, I want to send you my own personal prayer letter, letting you know what I'm doing. Uh, I should be going to Israel in a few weeks, but it's been canceled, obviously. Uh, I teach there. My classes have been canceled for obvious reasons. I'm teaching via Zoom, Internet, with Israel. Actually, next Saturday I have a seminar with people in Israel. And, uh, but I want you to know what we're doing, especially what I am doing. So I'm the local friend, the local guy. And my ministry is worldwide, and my wife, Julia, she's the office manager for headquarters in New York. And uh, we need your prayers. So this brochure will, you fill it out with your name and your address. And if you're able to give an, a donation, indicate the amount so we can send you a thank you note. And uh, if you want to do your contribution through a credit card, you can do it through a credit card, debit card. But just put the information there. Or if you want to do a check, uh, write it to Chosen People Ministries, not to me, okay? But take this, you know, once you split this, you have two parts. This, you leave it in the back, and the way out, you're going to see an offering plate, and you can put this. Even if you cannot give an offering, we still want to, I still want to keep in touch with you. Okay, this, the letter that I'm talking about, that's not written by my staff or personnel, it's written by me, okay? 
is my personal prayer letter. But I want you to take these home with you. It has a nice picture of my wife and me, my wife Julia in the back. I'm the good-looking you know, of these two couple in the couple here. And uh, it tells you what you can do. Put it somewhere, okay? And put it somewhere where we can see it often. Put it in a magnet refrigerator so you can pray, support, learn more, witness to the Jewish people, especially during this time. This, this night, tonight, I want to bring some thoughts in regard to understanding this crisis that we are facing. See if I can get along with this. Yeah, here we go. The genesis of the present Israeli conflict. The thing that we need to understand is the Israel's at war again. It's been 3,500 years since we've been at war. Enemies keep on rising and Israel keeps surviving. That's why the title of this book is not coincidence, The Endurance of Israel. Not because Israel is Israel, but because God is God. And we need to understand that. And when you see, we need to understand the ongoing conflict between Hamas and the Arab world. Uh, what, what are the causes? We need to understand things don't just happen by accident. Things have a reason. Things have, uh, the wars and incidents don't just happen in a vacuum. They, they, they're part of history. So, uh, the crisis between the Arabs and Arab world cannot be seen as an isolated event. They have to be seen uh, from a political, historical, needs to be understood also from a, a more general perspective, not just on something that is happening there right now. Most importantly, I believe that we as believers need to see these events from a biblical perspective. Why is this different? Why is this not, I mean, the word in Ukraine is a tragic as well. I should be going to Ukraine, and I couldn't go. I look forward to going there early next year. And why we're not talking about Ukraine? Because the people of the Bible, the Bible that you hold, the history of the Jewish people, the chosen people. The, past, the, the passage that, that Pastor Scott just read is the history of the Jewish people. So the Bible is this relationship between God, the Jewish people, and the nations. So as believers, we need to see this, and we're prone to follow the news through CNN, Fox, or whatever, or the newspapers. But do we follow the news of what's happening today according to the Bible? And we as believers need to do that. We need to, in order to understand the present, we need to understand the past and also the future. Because this has a eschatological, this has a, a, a purpose that needs to be understood. And uh, is this war that is going on part of a prophetic plan? Does the Bible talk about uh, a plan for the future? Does the Bible talk about the nations? Is it coincidence that today the United Nations unanimously is voting against Israel? Isn't that what prophecy says? Are we surprised? I'm discouraged personally. You know, I was driving down there. We were driving here with my wife. I said, you, you look downcast. Yeah, I was following the, the United Nations. And, you know, on the other hand, we know how it's going to end. 
We get to understand that these events that are taking place are just coincidence. This is what the Bible said that was going to happen. When you read Ezekiel chapter 38, 37, 38, when you read the book of Isaiah, are we talking about a fantasy or are we talking about reality? And as believers, we need to see the things are reality. As believers, we need to see world events as God's plan unfolding for human history. So, if we look at this from a biblical perspective, we've got to go way back to the beginning of this event. Oops. Wrong key. To start with, we understand this conflict has been foretold. And he says here that when Isaac prayed to have a child, Rebecca was surprised and she was upset because she, she couldn't have a child. And then when she is promised a child, she, it happened to have twins. And the passage says here, Isaac prayed to the Lord in behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled with each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went and inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you will be separated, and the older will serve the younger. Well, from the very beginning, we have here an, a conflict. Now, we also have a conflict because we have here what we call the Abrahamic, the Abrahamic covenant. And the covenant God made with Abraham. You remember when God called Abraham? Because Abraham was faithful and obeyed the Lord, God made a promise to Abraham and I call it the problem of the Abrahamic covenant. Because I read the following, and you can read the Bible. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, To your descendants, not to Abraham, but to your descendants, I'll give you this land. From the river of Egypt, the great river, the Euphrates, and the land, and I highly, the land of the Kenites, the Kenesites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershurites, and the Jebusites. Okay, it's great. I'm, we're getting a gift from God. There's a problem. There are other people there. Why did God give to the children of Israel a land that was occupied by other people? Didn't God know that there were other people in there? Didn't God have Wyoming to send the children of Israel? There was nobody there. Why did the Lord send the Israelites to a land that was occupied? Could it be that within God's plan was that he would use the Israelites, the children, the descendants of Abraham to bring God's judgment? Oh, but that's not politically correct. Okay. Are we going to look at things from God's perspective or from our own perspective? Did the Lord know the problem that he was making? I think he did. I think it was God's plan 
to you the children of Israel, and that's what God commanded Joshua to do. Now, in the letter to the Romans, we see this clearly, that God chose of the two children, he chose one, and one will be a blessing, and the other one will not be a blessing. And it is plainly where the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 9, verse 13, he says, Jacob I've loved, I, uh, Esau I hated. Oh, wait, wait, God, you shouldn't be using words like that, God. You shouldn't be talking like that. We should be just sit together and sing Kumbaya. There's no, bring, there's no need for you to bring judgment on other nations, no matter how wicked they are, no matter how sinful they are. Just, we have to sit down and get along. Is that the God of the Bible? That's not what I read. I may not like it, I may not mean, but that's what the Bible says. And I'm quoting here from Malachi. We don't have the time to read it all. But it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declared the Lord. Yet, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. And to jump ahead, because we don't have the time to go into every piece of scripture. You can, you can take it from, from me. It's in Malachi chapter 1, verse through, uh, 1 through 5. Who are this Esau's descendants? According to what we understand... A full genealogy of who are Esau's descendants. Now, you, God made it clear, okay? And the Apostle Paul says, you know, who are we to tell God what is right and what is wrong? And that's what, in essence, what he's, why he's quoting Malachi. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. And God brings judgment upon whom God brings judgment. Now, the Bible says that he's a righteous God. He's not a vengeful God, so he will not punish the innocent, neither will he let the guilty go free. That is why throughout the Bible we see God using the children of Israel to bring judgment on other nations. And if you're like it, that's tough. If not politically correct, I'm sorry. You want to do a sitting in your cafeteria against Israel, go ahead. But look at what the Bible says. God has used Israel, not because Israel is perfect, but because Israel is a servant of God. Israel, my servant, Ebed. I've chosen you to be my servant, my people, to do my job. So God many times has used in the past and is using in the present even the nation of Israel to bring judgment on other people. Now, the full genealogy of who the descendants of Esau are, are outlined in Genesis chapter 31. And you don't have the time to read it. It's a long text. And tells who the, they are the chief of this, these are the chief of that, these are the chief of that. But historians have identified, and I deal with historians in Hebrew University, which is the top foremost academics in this field, and they have identified they, what the Bible calls their descendants. They are the people that the nations, the tribes, the, the, the countries that today surround the people of Israel. Now, uh, historians have identified the nations that are the descendants of Esau. And God has made, made it very clear. Jacob I've loved. Esau I don't like. Why did why God has a problem with Esau and his descendants? Because Esau, having the chance, having the chance, rejected 
the promise. Having the chance. And Jacob liked the promise to the point he even lied about it. But he got the promise. And God, go through the pages of the Bible. God has an issue with Esau and his descendants. Long, God has a long memory. And it's happening. And it's happening again and again. Now, you, you look, you know, when the Lord uses the nation of Israel to bring judgment on other nations, it didn't just happen in the Bible. It didn't just happen thousands of years ago. It's still happening today, even before our own eyes. You know, we certainly doesn't fit with our modern view of politics, geopolitical issues, when diplomacy, and so on and so forth. But when God told the children of Israel, you are going to enter into a land, the land, you remember what he told to Abraham? The land of the Canaan, the parasite, blah, 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 all this. Hey, Lord, don't you realize there are people in there? Yeah, I know. But you're going to be my agents by which I will bring judgment on these people. Wait a minute, Lord. Aren't you just a loving God and everybody and then you're going to forgive everybody? Yeah. If you repent, certainly. If you don't repent. Now, why did the Lord order Joshua to enter into the promised land, into the land of the Canaan, the Parasite, the Gerasite, blah, 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 all these heights that you see there? And God said, destroy everything. He didn't say, go there and make peace with these nations. That would be a modern view, right? But God told very clearly and very specifically to uh, Joshua, when you enter the promised land, you destroy everything. Because this is my judgment to those who are sinners, who are idol worshippers, who those who do not walk according to my will. Now, you remember King Saul, first king of Israel? The Lord told him, you know what, you got to finish. And he was urging Israel throughout, you know, Israel went and conquered. And somehow they didn't finish the job. And we're going to about the problem of not finishing the war. When the Israelites enter and conquer the promised land under Joshua, there was a time when they decided, okay, you know what, it's enough war, let's just settle here. And they didn't complete the job. And the Lord was urging all the, you know, the thumb of the judges. And he was urging even King David and King Solomon continue the job. And one day, the Lord told King Saul, go and deal with the Amalekites. Because they're going to lead you astray. And I got to bring judgment upon them. So he didn't tell Saul, go and make a peace treaty with them. He said, go and destroy everything. Whoa. Destroy everything? Then when he's coming back from that war against the Amalekites, uh, the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, did you, did you destroy everything that the Lord told you? Oh, yeah, I did. So what is that sound of, you know, I hear some cattle there. What is the bleeding of? Goats and sheep. Well, I saved a few for me. And what does the Lord do? He says, because you did not destroy everything as I commanded you, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. 
Whoa. That means that when God tells Israel to destroy everything, he means business. Saul lost the crown because he did not destroy everything. Now the question is here, is God being fair? Is God being fair? Romans, it says here, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So, do we have a God? Who has the right. And when we question whether he has the right. He has. You know we talk about the righteous God. A loving God. Yeah. But he's a righteous judge as well. And the Bible is very clear. That he will not let the unjust. Be punished. He will bring to judgment. Now. Was God unfair when he. Send the ten plagues to Egypt? Did the Egyptians suffer? Was there a humanitarian crisis there? From a, they suffer more than the Palestinians are suffering today. God sent the plagues upon the whole nation of Israel. To the point that he said that even the most terrible plague, the last plague... All the firstborn of all the Egyptians, and we're talking about at least four million people, all of them were killed by God. Whoa! That doesn't square with my theology. That doesn't square with the God I want. Well, that's the God who is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is the one who's going to bring judgment upon the nation. And when he says to Moses, you, I'm going to bring judgment upon the gods of Egypt. Does he go and destroy just the temples? Or the... No, he goes and destroys the people who are worshipping there as well. Whoa. When the Israelites enter into the promised land, did they cause a humanitarian crisis? Those are questions that are hard to answer. And no, we don't like the tragedy that's going on. However, are we just talking about innocent people who are absolutely, totally innocent? Oh, certainly pray. And we're going to come to that at the end. We will certainly pray for the Palestinians. But are they absolutely not guilty? Is God not bringing judgment upon them? I was shocked. To see a poll, a survey that was published last week. And I, I brought it up today because this is important. Because this survey is made by the Arab War Research, Arab War World for Research. And development. And if you, you don't see the, 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 the fine print there, it was November 14, was three weeks after the massacre, 
And it is published by the Palestinian Authority with the address in Ramallah, Palestine. And this is a survey made by the Palestinian Authority three weeks after the, the attacks of October 7. And the results of this poll that was taken among the Palestinians, it's appalling. And it's not mine. You can research it. This is published. And it's published in the Internet, and you can see it. And the results that this poll shows are astonishing. 76% of the Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank supported the actions of Hamas of October 7. In 2006, 80% of the population in Gaza elected the terrorist group Hamas over the more moderate Palestinian Authority administration. They had a right to vote. They voted for terrorists. 79, I'm sorry, 82% of Palestinians reject a two-state solution. 79% want an Israel-free Middle East from the river to the sea, supporting the destruction of Israel. These are the Palestinians who are suffering in Israel or in Gaza today. Do we feel sorry for them? Absolutely. Do we feel compassion for them? Yes, we ought to. But let me, wow, time is advancing. Uh, let me just go a little bit. Since we know what's going on, let's, let's take a look. Where, does, where in modern times, where all this war comes from? We know the situation, but we got to go back to World War I. World War I, the area that we know, the near Middle East, all that region was controlled by the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. And World War I was fought between the central powers of Germany, Austria, and the Ottoman Empire against the Allies, who were England, France, Russia, and later on, the United States. So, you see, you see here a map, I don't know if you can see the details, you see the detail there on the left? You see the map on the left? You see all the dark place there? This, that's the Ottoman Empire. They were in control of, of, of the Middle East. In the middle of the war, the World War I, something is happening. The Allies need the support of the Arab tribes in order to defeat the Turks. You remember the movie Lawrence of Arabia? You remember that one? That's exactly true. That's exactly what happened. They, they rally, they tried to rally the Arab tribes in order to defeat the Turkish or the Ottomans. So, Sir Henry McMahon, the gentleman we see here on your left, was the foreign minister of the British Empire. And he made a promise to Abdullah bin El-Hal Hussein, who is the great-grandfather of the modern king of Jordan. And that promise to the Arabs said, 
if you help us in defeating the Turks, I will appoint Abdullah al-Hussein the ruler of the Middle East. Whoa, great offer. Who didn't want that? That is why Abdullah al-Hussein rallied all the tribes, the Arab tribes were just tribes, were just clans, it was not organized. And he rallied all the, he helped the British. And the British said, you help us and we will give control of this to the Arabs and we will appoint you as the leader of this region. That's a great promise, right? But there's a, boy, there was a problem. At the same time, the British made a promise to the Jews. And the promise was as follows. The Allies were running out of ammunition. And they ran out of the raw material to make explosive and gunpowder. Because Germany had control of the main factories like Bayard and the other companies that controlled the raw material for developing gunpowder. And without gunpowder, you can hardly fire a gun, right? So they asked Heim Weissmann, who is here on your left, who had received the Nobel Prize of Chemistry. He was a Jew in Great Britain. And they said, if you are able to invent a synthetic form of gunpowder, we will look with favor the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. Under your own control. So, on the one hand, they are promising something to the Arabs. And on the other hand, they are promising a land to the Jews in the same place. And again, we have a conflict whenever you are promising the same thing to do to different people. So at the end of uh, World War I, the League of Nations, following what we call the Balfour Declaration, and the Balfour De Declaration is a white paper, it's a statement, in which it says that the British, I cannot read all the details, but it says that Do uh, Arthur James Balfour wrote to the head of the Jewish community in the British Empire, Baron Rothschild. And it's a white paper. White paper is a, it's not a law, but a letter of intent, or declaration of intent. And this, this is the first ever in modern times promise, that for the first time it is mentioned, that the Jewish people could have a home in the Middle East. At the time, there were no Jews in Israel. At the time, there were only about 5,000 Jews on all of Israel. So when the Jews were beginning to be persecuted in Europe, the pogroms in Russia, the massacres in Ukraine, persecution in Poland, they make this promise. And there was a secret accord. I don't have that, and this is a fascinating story. Actually, we can write a, write a novel. Novels have been written about this. The secret accord between France and Great Britain in Russia, how they're going to split the Middle East after the end of World War I, after the Ottoman Empire is defeated. It was a secret pact, and Russia was going to receive what is now Crimea and part of the Black Sea. And when the war was won, something happened in Russia. And they, there was a secret pact, a secret, it was very secret, made between the British foreign minister 
uh, Sykes, and the French minister, Sukot, and uh, an, a representative of the Tsar. They wrote, wrote a map, threw some lines there, this is going to be yours, this is going to be mine, we're going to divide the spoils. At the end of World War I, the Tsar has been deposed and the communists come into power, right? So they say, you know what, we're not going to give to Russia anything. Since, you know, they were part of the agreement. But So, of course, the Russians didn't like it. So that secret pact became public. And there was a lot of uproar to the point that the, the newly established League of Nations, at the end of World War I, not United Nations, but League of Nations, when this comes to the open, it's okay, we're going to formalize the control of the Middle East. So what they do? They give to Great Britain what they call the mandate. And the mandate declared that, according to a resolution of the United Nations, I'm sorry, by the League of Nations, September 29, 1923, a Class A declaration that says that the, the land was going to be controlled by the British. And this is a declaration for the creation of a state where they're going to be Jews and they're going to be Arabs. And Jews began to immigrate at the end of World War I, began to immigrate to what was then Palestine under the British mandate. Also, the Arabs started going there as well. Because what's going to happen? Do you remember the promise that was made to them? You will have control of this. And you will control all the Middle East from where? From Jerusalem. So you got a problem here because the British have told the Israel, the, 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 the Jews, we welcome you under the Belfour Declaration, and the Arabs will welcome you to help, and so you're gonna to sit together and just get along fine. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. So the the, Israel, the, the Jewish people that began to immigrate from Europe, they needed work. At the time, the Palestine, what it was called Palestine, was barren, it was a desert. It was no longer the land that flowed milk and honey. For 1,500 years, the Arabs have cut down all, every tree. There were no farmers. They were just goat herders and sheep herders. And the land was barren. When the Jews began to immigrate under what we call the Zionist movement, the Zionist movement is just the the movement to bring people who were persecuted in Europe to go and settle in the back of the, in the land of Israel. Mount Zion is one of the hills in Jerusalem. So they called it the Zionist movement, going back there. So they needed workers. They need people to work on the land. So they welcomed the Arabs. The Arabs, they welcomed Arabs from Syria, from Lebanon, from Egypt, from Iraq, from Morocco. And 700,000 Arabs immigrated at the end of World War I to Palestine. These are the Palestinians. The Palestinians are people who were born there. They're the descendants of those who came to work, along with the Jews, in this new country under the control of the British Empire. But again... When you have communities, one saying to the British, hey, you promised that we're going to be governing ourselves. And the Arabs said, hey, you promised to Abdullah that he's going to be our king. So there began to be frictions and frictions and frictions. 
And during the British mandate, things began to go from bad to worse between the two communities. World War II happens. The Holocaust happens. And the Jews want to immigrate because those who survived the Holocaust are looking for a homeland. So they go to Israel. And Israel is, is in turmoil because the Arabs don't want him. The British blockaded the entrance of Jews who were escaping World War II. Jews that had escaped the Holocaust were sent back to Germany to die in the concentration camps. You probably remember the movie Exodus or the book Exodus. That's a tragic history. It became a hot potato. So at the end of World War II, Great Britain says, guys, enough is enough. We can't handle this. So at the end of World War II, they established the United Nations. And one of the first resolutions of the United Nations was to divide this land into two states. Talking about a two-state solution, well, the two-state solution was already mandated by the United Nations in 1948. On the 29th of November 1947, the General Assembly of the United Nations, the same assembly that is now, as we speak, in New York, condemning Israel, adopted a what is called Plan Resolution 181, Section 2. The resolution recommended the creation of an independent Arab state and independent Jewish state. The plan was accepted by the Jews, but the Arabs rejected totally that plan. So when we talk about now today the two-state solution, there was a two-state solution already approved by the United Nations in 1947. The promise that the Arabs rejected at the time. Not only did they rejected it, but they totally condemned it. The Arabs made clear at the United Nations Assembly when the partition of the land was declared by the United Nations, the Arab made clear that they would go to war before having two states. The chairman of the Arab League said the Arabs would fight for every inch of their country. Two days later, the holy men of Al Qaeda University called the Muslim world to proclaim a jihad against the Jews worldwide. The Arab High Commissioner to the nation, Nations had told that the soil of our beloved country will be drained with the last drop of our blood if we have a Jewish state. Things didn't start well, did they? So the same day that Israel declares independence on the 14th of May, here we go. In 14th of May, 1948, the day when the British seized, the very same day that the British gave up the control of Palestine, the, the Jews declared the independence and the creation of a state that after 2,700 years will bear the name Israel. The name Israel was not used for the Jewish nations since 700 years before Christ. So 1948, is God faithful to his promises? Does God have a short memory? Does God remember his promises? I will give you the land. Now, the problem is that the very same day when uh, we have here a picture of 
Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, who was the first president, or prime minister, I'm sorry. Uh, Heim Weizmann was the first president. And here on, the, on, my, on your right is the long text of the Declaration of Independence, signed by many people, among them um, uh, Golda Meir, who was an American who emigrated to Israel and later on became prime minister. But the very same moment, the very same moment that Israel was reading the Declaration of Independence, the combined armies of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, invaded Israel. As they were reading the Declaration of Independence, the Arab countries rolled into Israel. It was unthinkable that Israel would survive one or two days. The odds were 72 to 1. Not very even, right? No nation tried, tried to help Israel. To the point that, to make things even worse, the British were so sure that Israel was going to be run overrun by the Arabs in 24 hours that they directly gave the keys to all the military posts to the Arabs. Israel didn't have an army. They had only farmers and people who emigrated, were survivors, and they fought. They fought hard, and they were able to hold back for a year and a half, the Arabs. The only thing that Israel could not control was the city of Jerusalem. Otherwise, in the War of Independence, they were able to control everything. Did the Arabs forget that? No. They said, we're going to get back to you. So, there were some skirmishes, finally the Six-Day War. Remember the Six-Day War? Again, the combined army. Now, you were talking about an army like Iraq that had over a million soldiers. We have 600,000 in Egypt. We have 150,000 in Lebanon. We have 300,000 in Syria. We have Saudi Arabia. And Israel had an army during the Six-Day War of 75,000. Was it possible for Israel to survive? Humanly speaking, no. But in six days... It was able to defeat the combined forces of all the Arab armies. Not only that, they control territory that now has been annexed by Israel, the Golan Heights, and Galilee, northern Galilee. Of course, the Arabs suffer another humiliation. They forget, no. In the anniversary of the Six-Day War, in the day of Yom Kippur, 1973, when all the Jews are in the synagogue praying, they decided to attack again. That was called the Yom Kippur War. In the Yom Kippur War, again, the combined armies of the Arab countries attacked Israel, and they were badly beaten. To the point, and this is a fascinating story, uh, who became later... Later, he became the prime minister, Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon, during the, the Yom Kippur War, advanced up to 13 miles outside of Cairo, who is Egypt's capital. If it hadn't been for the United Nations and United States to tell the Israeli army to go back to retreat, Egypt would have been a, a Jewish city today. They were also ordered to pull back from Syria. They were in the outskirts of, of Damascus. 
Again, every time that Israel fought a war, the world decided to uh, condemn Israel. Was Israel fighting for its life every time? When they, when after losing open wars, which mathematically would have been impossible, militarily it's, it's impossible. But doesn't the Bible say it's not my might or by power? But you know what? Today we're remembering Hanukkah. You know what Hanukkah is? Hanukkah is the remembrance when the Jews were able to defeat the Greek Syrian army who had profaned and invaded Israel. Remember Alexander the Great? After he died, he conquered most of the world. He tried to make all the whole world Greek. And most of the people went along except when it came to Israel. They said, you know what? I like your idea, but we're Jews. You know? We're going to continue to be worshiping our God. And who was then uh, one of the successors of the empire, Antiochus IV, decided, you know what? Enough with the Jews. I'm going to force them to burn every Torah, every book of the law. I'm going to forbid circumcision. Any child that is circumcised will be killed and the corpse of the baby will be hanged on the mother's neck for one week. Not only that, I'm going to go to the temple and put there in the temple of Jerusalem a beautiful statue of myself and Zeus. That's why he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanius, a revelation or manifestation of God. Not only that, but he ordered that in every city, every city on the specific day, every Jew will have to offer a pig and worship the Greek gods. And when there's a little town called Modin, if you ever go to Israel, it's just outside of the airport, modern day. The town of Modin was a priest, and the priest who was called Matathias, who had uh, four sons. And Matathias was ordered to go and offer a pig to the Greek gods. And when the time came, the, 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 the Greek Syrian army were there to enforce this. And when the time came to offer the sacrifice, they attacked and killed the Greek Syrian garrison. And they continued to fight. That was impossible to win. So Judah, Judah who led the, the, the fight, decided to fight in a, what we call warfare, guerrilla warfare. And he said, I'm going to hit and run, hit and run, hit and run. And that is called in Hebrew, the hammer. Hammer in Hebrews, Maccabee. That's why we get the Maccabees, or the Maccabeans, taking after Judah. It wasn't his last name, it was the name that he was called for, because he, he used guerrilla warfare to fight an army that was 10,000 more powerful than all the Jews combined. And in the book of Maccabees, it says, it wasn't by power, it wasn't by might, it was by God's power. And then they go to the temple and they clean the temple. That's why this feast is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Why? Because it didn't happen. The Old Testament had been already closed when the Maccabees in the year 133 cleansed the temple. It was in the intertestamental period. So this Jewish holiday that the Jewish people celebrate and the Christians don't, is mentioned not in the Jewish Bible, but in the New Testament. John chapter 10. I said, when the Feast of Dedication came, 
Jesus went to the temple because on the 25th of Kislev, which was five days ago, for eight days, we celebrate Hanukkah. And we have a candelabra made with eight branches because there was a miracle. When they cleansed the temple and they want to rededicate the temple to the Lord, what did they find? There was no oil for the menorah. They had oil for just one day. So they said, what do we do? We burn for one day or we wait eight days until the new oil can be produced? I said, well, just, we'll put it for one day and it goes off, it goes off, and we'll just wait. And the miracle, as the story tells is that the oil that was supposed to last one day lasted for eight days until the new oil was buried. That's why we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days. Not only that, guess what we eat? Fried food. Why? Because remembering the oil. So we have some, I know my wife is there, she's going to correct me because I never say it right. There is a type of donuts that are called sufragno, right? Or similar to that. So fragnot, which are beautiful jelly-filled donuts fried, right? <laughs> and then we eat potato latkes, potato pancakes that are fried. And this is the one holiday that all the doctors are against. But we have a tradition in Judaism. All the Jewish holidays can be summarized in the following way. Somebody tried to kill us. The Lord saved us. Let's eat. It happened before. Quote, Today, Israel is fighting the same way like the Maccabees did. Today, Israel is fighting because God is faithful to his promise. And in closing, we got to go, we got to go ahead. And I, I just mentioned here. Now, since the, the, since the Arabs cannot defeat militarily in a frontal war with Israel, under the influence of Iran, who is trying to impose radical Islam among the... This is another story we don't have the time to tell. The Arab world is divided into several branches of Islam. The two main branches are uh, Sunnis and Shiites. The Sunnis are basically uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. and 80% of the Muslims in the world are Sunnis. The Shiites are radicals who get control of Iran. And one of the things that they tried to do, they tried to export their brand of Islam by force. And in order to do that, they can't do it in any other way. So they had to find a common cause to who would unite all the Arabs. And one thing is the common hatred for the Jews. So Iran established not a frontal war, but encouraged what we call guerrilla warfare. And terrorists attacks that's why we're facing a war today so under the sponsorship of Iran and the the world is looking the others is that looking the other way however as we hear maps of Israel and how each one of the wars and uh, I just summarize the rise the birth of radical Islam and how the radical Islam is using terrorist groups in order to unite the Arab world. But I believe that God has the final word. I believe that the ultimate coalition, you know, on the one hand, I'm 
I was sad today because I'm, I'm listening to all the speeches in the United Nations, each of them condemning Israel. On the other hand, my wife, who is intelligent, more intelligent than I am, you know, we were just driving here, and I was listening to the, to the speeches in the United Nations. I was, I was sad. And my wife said, said, don't you know how the, the, this is going to end? Look at the Bible. Ezekiel 38, 39, says that all the nations, all the nations will rise against Israel. A final coalition. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I just work for a non-profit, okay? <laughs> but I want to tell you something. I know how this thing ends because I read it in the Bible. And in times like this, when I am discouraged, i got to go back to the Bible and see the Lord. The Lord says, I will fight. I will bring you back. I will restore your fortunes. I believe that Jesus always talked about wars and rumors of wars. I believe that neither Hamas, Hezbollah, Iraq, Iran, will have the power to destruct Israel. The question is, as Christians, how do we look at this? As Christians, we should recognize that no matter how cruel or powerful any country or tyrant might be, God has the final word. What we read in the Bible Psalm 121 and 122. From where my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will protect you from all evil. All evil. Call it Hamas, Hezbollah, Iraq. From this time forth... And forever. How long is forever? With the closing of the Old Testament, that's the end of no. Forever thing when God says, This is it. This is the end. And reading jump to, to Ezekiel thirty eight, and I encourage you to read it because it talks about the world coalition rising against Israel, as it is happening as we speak. Are we coming to the final Pages of world history? I hope so. Do you believe in the second coming? Well, whether you believe or not, he's coming, okay? And he's, he's not going to ask whether you approve it or not, he's coming back. And the Bible says that he will judge all nations. And he will reign from Brooklyn, New York? No. From where? From Jerusalem. So there will be a Jerusalem. There will be somebody seated in the throne of David according to the promises that God made. Even when we read during Christmas time, the promises, the prophecies, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, the Lord will accomplish. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Not because of Israel, because of who he is. The zeal of the Lord will do it. Because he is a promise keeper God. And once verse why will God do all of this? He says, and so I will show my greatness and my holiness 
and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. So, do we have a reason to be hopeful? Yeah. Not by reading the newspaper or watching TV. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. I'm preaching this to myself. Read your Bible. So what is our duty? And let me close with this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. And there's something here that I, I can't... It's hard for me. I have family in Israel. They're not saved. They don't know Jesus yet. They're elderly. My uncle Moshe just turned 90. 90, 90 right? And they've got to go to bomb shelters now. And it's hard for me to pray for my enemies. But Jesus taught us something. says, pray. I said to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I got to confess, it's hard for me to do it. When my own family, my own people I love are suffering because of this war. However, Jesus says, you want to be known as my child? Pray for your enemies. Love those who hate you and persecute you. Wow. Lord, are you sure? Can it be plan B? Can I pray for them when they repent? No. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. In times like this, in times of affliction, and uncertainty, it's the time to share the message of the Prince of Peace. You know, when in the book of Isaiah, it mentions the name of the child. When the names, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And the last thing he says, and the Prince of Peace. Sar Shalom. Our ministry worldwide is known as Sar Shalom Ministry. Bet Sar Shalom, the house of the Prince of Peace. Because peace will be realized, not by a declaration of the United Nations, not by the coalition that may be forged, but when the Prince of Peace reigns in the heart of man. Our prayer is that today, Jewish people will come to the understanding that their victory will not come because Israel has a powerful, mighty army, but because of the God of Israel is faithful to his promises. It's a time for us to pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. Pray for those who suffer. Pray for those who are being persecuted. But this is a time for us to pray for the Jewish people. If you, again, one of the signs of the second coming, as we are told in the Bible, is the spiritual revival of the Jewish people before the second coming. So I want to make it clear. If you want Jesus to come back, and I hope he comes before the next election. <laughs> start sharing the gospel with the Jewish people. There are around 10,000 Jews in Virginia Beach, Norfolk. You know how many believe in Jesus? 
0.07%. That makes them, I can count them with my hands. Oh, two hands. Two hands. I know them all. That makes the Jews. You know, in Virginia Beach, we had a mayor who was Jewish. And it happens that my doctor, my dentist, my lawyer, they're all Jewish. They need to know Jesus. And they won't hear the message unless you and I preach it. The same Apostle Paul say, how can they believe in the one whom they haven't heard of? And how can they hear if nobody preaches? Now let me close with this thought. You, have you seen the, the Hanukkah, the light of, of, of the menorah? The Hanukkah is the candelabra that we light during Hanukkah. It's not called the menorah because out of respect to the real menorah who was in the temple, this one has it's not identical because that was a seven branch, right? Because it had six on each side. The, the menorah that we use for Hanukkah has eight branches and one in the middle. And every night we light the middle candle first. The middle, you see, it's called the Hanukkah. And the Hanukkah, it has to be different from the menorah. It's different shapes. You can buy it anywhere, and they have different shapes. But one thing stands out is the central, the central candle or light. That's called the shamash. The shamash in Hebrew means the servant. In order to light the light of the menorah every night, or the Hanukkah every night, we have to let the light of the first candle go first. That light which is called the servant, is used to light each of the other candles. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he said, you are also the light. People know that you are his children because you have the light. I don't have the light on me unless Jesus lights my life. In this Hanukkah season, let us allow the Prince of Peace, the central candle of Hanukkah, illuminate our lives so we may show the love of Jesus to those who are in darkness. Amen? Okay, I know I went over time, but it's okay. I'm in control. Uh, I promise to do two things. One, that I will leave early tonight. Uh, second, if you have any questions, any comments, this is a very informal meeting tonight, okay? So if you have any questions, this is your time to ask your questions. If you have not understood a thing of what I've said, no questions. If you understood everything I said, no questions. But I believe that we are halfway through, right? We understood at first certain things, certain things we did not understand. So this is your chance. Don't talk to me later on, okay? This is your, any questions, any comments on what I've said? Anything needs to be clar clarified? Nobody? Gone once? No questions? Yes, yes. Okay, this is a, uh, that's one of the points I have to jump over. Since the War of Independence, the United Nations stopped every time that Israel was winning. Had the United Nations allowed Israel to defeat the Arab countries in the War of Independence, we would not have had the Six-Day War. 
had not been for the United Nations and the General, as, uh, no, for the Security Council of the United Nations, who forced Israel to stop the war against the invaders, six-day war, Israel would not have the problem that it's having today. Every time that Israel is about to win the war, the nations rise to stop Israel. It will stop. I know. I heard uh, yesterday the Prime Minister of Israel says, no matter what the United Nations says, this time we're going to finish it. Because you can't, like Golda Meir said, I was sharing with my friend there, Golda Meir, a strong lady from Cincinnati who became Prime Minister of Israel, said, how can I make war when you have the gun pointed in my head? You want to talk peace? Put down your gun. Then we'll talk peace. You want to talk peace? Remove from your charter the destruction of Israel. You want to live in peace? We're ready to have peace if you're willing to live in peace. I just share with you a census, a survey taken by the Palestinian Authority. Most people still want the destruction of Israel. How can you make peace? Well, the only way the Israel, Israel will have to continue and dismantle Hamas. And no matter how much it takes, I'm sorry to tell you, I'm a man of peace. But this time Israel has to finish it. Israel has to dismantle the terrorist organization called Hamas. And if Hezbollah gets into the, you know, Iran is behind all of this. And uh, they cannot attack the United States directly, so they attack Israel. So they cannot attack God directly, they attack whom God loves. So I, I would have to agree with the Israel military that said no matter what the United Nations establish, even, even the United States now is calling for Israel stopping the, the war. Israel has said, we're going to finish it. We're going to dismantle the terrorist organizations. Will that be the end? I hope that the end comes when the Lord Jesus comes. And you know what? The New Testament ends? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's my prayer again. Only the Prince of Peace can establish real peace. Yes, there's a question back there. Anti-Semitism is a tool of the devil. If you, if you can hurt me, you try to hurt my children, I'll get very upset. But my children are more vulnerable than I am. So since Satan cannot attack God, because he can't, he's trying, he'll do everything to attack whatever God loves. He's attacking Israel. He's attacking the church. Don't you think that we as believers in America are being attacked by a secular world that is trying to remove God from our society? Yeah. Those are tools of the devil. Anti-Semitism is a tool of the devil. And no matter how much you can explain the facts. And I have in my book, I have all the statistics by the United Nations. 1948. How, why do we have two million people in Gaza? Now let me close, well, let me clarify this. Do you understand why we have two, th two million people in Gaza? Because on the day that Israel declared independence and the United Nations declared the partition of Israel, there was an agreement in that resolution, 181 of the United Nations, that said, during the British mandate, Jews and Arabs 
were together in what is today Israel and Lebanon. Actually, the organization is to be the Secretary General for many years. We had a farm in what is today Lebanon. But when the war, when the independence of Israel came, there was a mandate that said the Jordan River is going to be the divider. All the Jews that live east of the Jordan River will move to the new state of Israel that is going to be west of the Jordan River. And all the Arabs who want to go to the Arab section will go to Jordan and will go to Lebanon and will go to Syria. And when the day came, Jordan closed the border. Syria closed the border. Lebanon closed the border. So they are living in refugee today in Syria and Lebanon. There are 52 refugee camps since 1948. They have no citizenship. They live in Syria and Lebanon along the Beka Valley. They have no running water. They have no education. They have no access to, to health. Who's, who's claiming for their rights? Nobody. They are people who were born there. Their grandparents were refugees in those ten camps. And today, now what happened in Gaza? Those who came from Egypt, remember I told you they worked, a lot of workers came to work in the, in the state of Israel, in Palestine, under the British mandate? When the declaration of independence came and the partition by the United Nations, when they tried to move from what is Israel into Egypt and North Africa, where they came from, Egypt crossed the border. And they got stuck there in the border. That's why we have that little strip of land in the border between Egypt and Israel called the Gaza Strip. Because they settled there because the Rafa crossing was closed. And Egypt did not want the Palestinians. Jordan did not want the Palestinians. Syria does not want the Palestinians. So we have a problem here, right? That's why we have two million people there. They, they could be spread all over Israel, but they are not. They were concentrated there because Egypt closed the border until today has closed the border to the Palestinians. They could be refugees. There's plenty of Arab countries, right? 79 Arab countries. They could be welcomed, welcoming the Palestinians, but nobody wants them. Ask them. They have made no excuse. They, they, they all talk about you know, the, the suffering of the Palestinians, but nobody wants them. You know, the United Nations has been, there's, uh, the United Nations has been arguing and fighting for those Palestinians who are, who are still in refugee camps all over Lebanon and, and Syria. They don't want them. They say, he left us. You know, they were not, well, those who went to work in Israel were not the top echelon of society, okay? They were at the bottom of the, of the working class. And for, this is me speaking, okay? I think Egypt was happy to see some of these uh, workers go. They didn't want them back. And the fact is, until today, they don't want them back. Egypt could have opened its borders. It has a lot of land. 
Algiers, Tunisia, Saudi Arabia, you name it. Plenty of land. Remember that I mentioned that after the death of Muhammad, there was an infight between his followers. Who was going to lead the movement from this point forward? So there was a fight between two groups. One group became the Shiite, and the other became the Sunnis. There were other splinters like Alevites and other groups. 80% became Sunnis, who are more intellectual. In 1970, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was a Shiite, who was exiled, when he came over back to Iran, he tried to impose the Shiite brand of Islam in the world. That put Iran at odds with Saudi Arabia. Because Saudi Arabia is in control of the religious sites, the Mecca and Medina and all the holy places of, of Islam. The fact that Arab Emirates and Egypt were about to make peace with Israel would have upset the intentions of unifying the Arab world under Shiite control. So, since it is a well-known fact that Iran has trained, prepared, financed all these terrorist groups, Iran is trying to impose its brand of radical Islam. So you want to stop the, an agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia? Read the wave the Palestinian flag. Make a war. It, was, it came in a very timely fashion when Saudi Arabia, which is the most important Muslim country in the world, was about, make, about to make peace under what was called the Abrahamic Accord. So I think that Iran won that, that war because even countries that were ready to make peace with Israel have now backtracked. I don't want, to, I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of you have witnessed to a Jewish friend I said, I don't want to see a show of hands. <laughs> because most of us have not had a chance. And I said, well, why have we had a chance? Hmm. Perhaps we don't know any Jewish person. Well, if you don't know, you can certainly pray for Jewish people. Half of the people in Hollywood or the TV characters that you watch on TV are Jewish. Have you prayed for their salvation? People in government. We have a lot of Jews in, in government. Have we prayed for them? I tried. I tried the best I can to witness to my Jewish dentist. I give my copy of my book, and uh, so I have means. But sometimes we do not intentionally. We got to be more intentional in what we're doing. 
You know, one of the prayers I do pray is that, Lord, put somebody on my path today that I may witness. Put somebody on my path. And that's something that we have. You know, like you said, we, you know, I've pastored six churches. And I've been the head of two missionary organizations. And we, we have great strategies. But, the, but nothing, nothing replaces the one-on-one. That's where the rubber meets the road. I used to teach homiletics. Homiletics is the, you know, how to prepare and deliver sermons. And I used to ask my students, what was the best sermon, better recorded, the best sermon, most efficient, I didn't say the best, the most effective message ever preached that we find in the New Testament? Oh, somebody was looking for the, you know, Sermon on the Mount, so on and so forth. And I said, no. Do you remember the man who was blind from birth? John 9. And the Jews, the Jewish leader said, you know, he, he must have, his parents must have sinned, so his son was born blind. So they went to the parents and said, well, what happened? He said, well, go ask him, he's a grown-up man. And what he said, when they asked him the question, how did he do it? He said, I don't know. And one thing I knew, I was blind, but now I can see. That is the most powerful message you can ever share. He didn't know theology. He didn't quote scripture. He just knew what God had done with him. You may not be an expert in Judaism. You may not be an expert in evangelism explosion. But you can share with others what Jesus has done for you. That's the essence of the gospel. That's what Jesus said. Go and make disciples. Now he didn't say go and be my lawyers. Sometimes we argue for Jesus. We argue in favor of Jesus as if Jesus was on trial. No, he didn't say that. You know, there's a difference between a lawyer, a judge, and a witness. I'm not a judge. God is judge. I'm not a lawyer. Jesus doesn't need a lawyer. How did he say, what am I? His witness. And his witness is somebody who has seen something and can only say and tell what he has experienced. That's why Jesus said, you're not going to be my theologians. You're going to be my witnesses. Just share with others what Jesus has done in your life. That changes life. Okay, in closing, let me just thank you again for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. Again, I would want you to keep in touch with you. Make sure that you fill out this form and keep on praying for us. I keep on being in touch with you. I promise to be faithful in my letters that I write. Uh, there's also, the, if you want to know more details about what I said today, my book gives specific details about the wars of Israel. But I thank you again. Remember to pray. Pray is the power that changes lives. And I thank you again for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. Amen. Scott.